Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone, to the Keeping It Civil podcast. Today, Josh and I are talking to H.R. McMaster, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, but also former U.S. Army Lieutenant General and U.S. National Security Advisor 2017 and 2018. He was on campus here at ASU to talk about U.S. foreign policy, civic education and leadership, and we were really happy to talk to him about these same topics and also about his new book, Battlegrounds. We hope you enjoy the conversation. General McMaster, thank you very much for joining the Keeping It Civil podcast. Hey, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Henry. Great to be with both of you guys. I'm going to take the first question and ask, despite your distinguished military career, you've been a quite outspoken critic of U.S. national security strategy for a long time, particularly in Vietnam and Afghanistan. But when you were a high school graduate just entering West Point in 1984, what was your opinion of U.S. national security strategy? Well, I really was just focused on my desire to serve in our army and history had always been my favorite subject. I uh, majored at West Point in international relations, but my favorite class was U.S. diplomatic history taught by my rugby coach at West Point, Bill Benson. So I, I really was learning about it at that stage, I guess, had not really formed opinions about U.S. foreign policy. And of course, as a historian, I was more prone later to ask more specific questions like how and why did Vietnam become an American war than a broader sweeping question about the nature of U.S. foreign policy across multiple centuries. So where did your critiques come from? What inspired them? I think maybe this is an important question because you did go through the same institutions as many U.S. military officers, and yet you seem to have come to quite different conclusions about U.S. national security strategy. It's really important, I think, to understand how the recent past produced the present. I think it, uh, before you can make projections into the future, so I'm a big believer in historical inquiry. And then as a military officer, you recognize it's your responsibility to lead soldiers in, in combat as a junior officer, but also to give best military advice. And I wanted to pick a topic that could help me prepare to fulfill those responsibilities later in my career. And of course, Vietnam was our most proximate and most searing experience in the U.S. military. And what struck me as a kid at West Point is, hey, nobody really talked about it. You know, our, our professors didn't want to talk about their frustrations associated with a, with a lost war in Vietnam. And so I thought what I could do in graduate school is spend my time researching, writing about how and why Vietnam became an American war. I got some great advice on that from a guy named Colonel Casey Brower, who was the head of the history department at West Point. And I said, hey, what should I look into? I want to look at a topic at the nexus of strategy and policy and, and military advice and, and decision-making at the highest levels of the U.S. government. And he said, you should do Vietnam. So that's the topic I chose. I initially started to just look at what the role of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were in the decisions that led to an American war in Vietnam. And then I realized, hey, I can't really evaluate that without the context of the role of all of Lyndon Johnson's advisors and how decisions were made more broadly in that administration in that crucial period, really between Kennedy's assassination and the ZM coup in November of 1963 and the decision to deploy large numbers of U.S. forces in the summer of 1965. 
Can I ask about the decision to pursue the PhD? You were in the military. Obviously, that was your future as well. You're going to remain in the military. What inspired your decision to pursue a PhD? Well, you know, it wasn't clear that I was going to spend 34 years in the Army, which I did. <laughs> when I yeah. came in, I, I told my wife, uh, Katie, when, when we're engaged, I said, yeah, I think I'll probably serve about five years and then maybe go to law school was the, was the plan. And so when she was roasting me on the occasion of my retirement party, she said, thank you for the bonus 29 years, you know. <laughs> but uh, five years I had in the Army before going to graduate school really made me appreciate the opportunity to read and think and write and discuss history as my job. Got it. Got it. And that resulted in your first book, Dereliction of Duty. I want to talk a bit about the more recent book that came out last year, Battlegrounds. One of the central themes of the book is strategic narcissism, which I'm quoting you here. You say that leads us to it was a tendency to view the world only in relation to the United States and to assume that the future course of events depends primarily on U.S. decisions or plans. So I'm wondering if strategic narcissism something that uh, you see in military leadership, political leadership, uh, or both? Yeah, I think both. I think the military <laughs> tries to educate our officers to not do that, right? Because you always begin. Every operation begins with situation enemy. So I, I think that, that military officers should be sensitized to, to look at complex challenges from the perspective of others, and especially adversaries, rivals, and, and enemies. But I, I think I find that in Washington in particular, that is often not the case. And because of the failure to understand or to, to think about the authorship that others enjoy over the future, it makes us susceptible to cognitive traps, especially you know, optimism bias, confirmation bias, and mirror imaging. And I think I was sensitized to this sort of phenomenon based on the research and uh, on how why Vietnam became an American war for, for dereliction of duty. And, and in particular, some of the memos are quite striking in connection with mirror imaging. And in fact, one memo, I think it was late 1964, early 1965, that was foundational to the strategy of graduated pressure as applied to Vietnam, talked about applying the, you know, the common law approach to bombing North Vietnam, under the theory that Ho Chi Minh would respond like the reasonable man in English common law. And of course, there, there was really no attention to the historical, the cultural, the ideological factors that bore on his and other Vietnamese, North Vietnamese leaders' decision making. How do we fix that? I'm wondering about institutionally how we can respond to this problem of strategic narcissism. Is we need you know, Henry and I were discussing before the podcast, do we need to change the West Point curriculum? Do we need more generals like you who have PhDs? Do we need to bring in professional historians to speak to Pentagon leaders? How do we institutionalize the, a fix to this problem? Well, you know, it's, it's broader than the military. It's across our whole government. I mean, if you look now at the catastrophe in Afghanistan, it's astonishing the degree to which what is being said in Washington is completely the opposite of reality on the ground in, in Afghanistan. Oh, you know, the Taliban don't impose a more benign form of Sharia. Really? I mean, how's that working out? The Taliban will share power in kind of a more inclusive government. If you look at the characters there, they're the same characters that, that had thrust Afghanistan into hell between 1996 and 2001. Oh, the Taliban are separate, you know, from other terrorist organizations, including the Haqqani Network and Al-Qaeda. They're completely intertwined. So what we did is we actually, in the case of Afghanistan, we conjured up the enemy we would prefer rather than the actual enemy. This is, I think, a deficiency in the humanities across all universities, because I, I think in recent years in particular, no offense, Henry, to political scientists, but I, I think that, <laughs> that, that, that the security studies field 
has become dominated by this tendency to fit the world into certain theories and to take a theoretical approach. And I think these theories often mask the complex causality of events and the human dimension of conflict in particular. And so I think there is this tendency toward optimism bias, confirmation bias, mirror imaging, that we really have to fight by a greater sensitivity to the complex causality of events and especially to the to how historical forces and and experiences shape our current world. So you define or describe the strategic narcissism almost as a universal problem, but I would really perhaps like to hear you outline a couple of instances, perhaps from Afghanistan or Iraq, where people did not behave according to the logic of strategic narcissism and perhaps really bucked this trend in a positive way. I tell the story in Battlegrounds of, of our regiment's experience in Iraq at a time when the strategy was to disengage and to focus exclusively on sort of raiding against uh, terrorist networks. When we went into Iraq, we asked questions, you know, what is really driving the conflict? What is the nature of the conflict in this particular part of Iraq? And what we found is that we were really experiencing this localized sectarian civil war in which, you know, tribal and cultural differences resulted in these groups in competition with one another for power and resources and survival. What we did is, understanding that that was what's driving the conflict, try to break that cycle of sectarian violence by you know, physically establishing security and then essentially going after the groups that were pulling this community apart from each other and pitting them against each other, but mediating between these other communities so that they could come to an accommodation and they could restore kind of enduring security and stability there. The rewrite of the whole plan for Iraq during the so-called surge in 2007 is another example. And a lot of people just focus on like the troop numbers and it was a reinforced security effort. But what was fundamental about that is that we developed a political strategy as the foundation to all other actions. And the political strategy aimed at achieving, again, this kind of accommodation between the various sects and uh, ethnic groups in, in Iraq to remove support, remove popular support for ex the extremes, the, the Shia militias that were largely backed by Iran and, and the jihadist terrorist groups that were you know, associated with uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so what do you do security-wise for that? Well, you know, it's hard to, hard to mediate or come to an accommodation when, when people are shooting at each other. So we had to get off the bases. We had to help break the cycle of sectarian violence. You know, if these groups feel as if the security forces are predators, they're not going to trust those security forces, and they will continue the sense of beleaguerment and continue to look to terrorists as sponsors or patrons and protectors. And so the reform of security forces, not just to build platoons or police forces, but to ensure that those forces you know, treat all the population respectfully and represent the various communities. So a whole different kind of approach to security sector reform, development assistance to ensure that services were delivered on a non-sectarian basis, to do what we could informationally to isolate the extremists on both sides from popular support and to bring communities together. Then, we, of course, we did this in partnership across a coalition and with you know, Iraqis who we could trust at this stage because so many of them had been caught up in the sectarian civil war. I think that's another example. But I would say when I came in as national security advisor, you know, you go through your careers and you think, you know, as a, as a lieutenant, maybe you look around and say, man, things are pretty screwed up here, but somebody up there must have a plan, you know? And then maybe when you're a more senior officer, you look around and say, things are kind of screwed up. And they realize, man, I don't think anybody has a plan. And then at some stage in your career, you realize you're the person who's responsible for the plan. You know, so, so as national security advisor, I thought, okay, let's, I'll try to at least endeavor 
to not make the same mistakes that I wrote about in Vietnam. And what we put into place was an unprecedented sort of process in which we would frame complex challenges before we decided what we were going to do about it or recommend to the president. And we called these principles small group framing sessions. We applied design thinking to our most significant challenges by trying to describe these challenges on their own terms, to apply strategic empathy, to pay particular attention to the ideology and the emotion and the aspirations that drive and constrain others. Then we inventoried, okay, what are our vital interests? Why, why should Americans care about this? And then it was viewing that, that complex challenge with the lens of vital interests that allowed us to then craft a clear overarching goal and more specific objectives. Another, of course, deficiency in the decisions that led up to a war in Vietnam. But then super importantly is to make assumptions and make those assumptions explicit, especially those involving the degree to which we have agency, and we being the United States and like-minded partners, have agency and influence over this complex problem. And then part of these five-page papers that were a basis for these discussions, this is the president's cabinet coming together, the principles committee of the National Security Council. We identified the obstacles to progress that are impeding us from making progress toward those objectives, and then the opportunities that we could exploit through the integration of all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners. And so we, in, we made a, a concerted effort to restore our strategic competence and to do that by you know, applying design thinking to these challenges and then having that framing discussion first before you say, okay, now what options should we bring forward to the president? Do you worry about our second-order effects of strategic narcissism? Like, for example, that the American public might not support investment in U.S. military power if they think that all of the military's plans are going to be fundamentally ill-conceived or poorly carried out because of this problem of strategic narcissism that you see as endemic to government and the military? Absolutely. I think what's happened is you know, our lack of strategic competence our inability to integrate all elements of national power effectively. Of course, you know, the military instrument on its own can't accomplish very much that, that is enduring, right? I mean, the consolidation of military gains to get to sustainable political outcomes that bring us into conflict to, at the outset, that's the hard part. That's what's, I mean, even more difficult oftentimes than, for example, unseating the Taliban and decimating Al-Qaeda, which we did in 2001 to 2002, and the difficulties we encountered since then, I believe, were based on our effort in Afghanistan being based on a short-term approach to a long-term problem, based on what we would prefer, which was to leave. I mean, we keep talking about that war as a, as a two-decade-long war. It wasn't. It was a one-year war fought 20 times over, and we kept saying, okay, we're leaving. Okay, now we're really leaving. Okay, now we're really, really leaving. And of course, the psychological effect of that was profound on our enemies who said, okay, yeah, we'll just wait them out. So what we have demonstrated is a lack of strategic competence. And as you're alluding to, Henry, what happens is then people lose confidence. They lose confidence in our ability to develop and implement a sustained, reasoned approach to foreign policy and national security. And it's a crisis that we have to all work to overcome. And the reason I wrote Battlegrounds is I think the greatest hope is that the American people will, as you're suggesting, demand better, demand better from our leaders. What's happened is, based on a lack of understanding, I think, of the complex challenges we face, we also see a, a lack of popular will to sustain efforts as well. I think these are related. And the, what you see emerging today, I think, really across both political parties is a form of neo-isolationism and a belief that our disengagement 
from the world. Our disengagement from complex challenges abroad is an unmitigated good. But I think, of course, disengaging from these challenges is dangerous. Not that we can solve these problems, but we have to work with others to ensure that problems that develop abroad don't reach our shores after which they can only be dealt with at a, an exorbitant cost. And I think that's what we should have learned from the experience with Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. And it, I think it's a lesson we should have learned from COVID as well. General, you mentioned uh, strategic empathy a couple times, which is another one of the themes in the book and is really the inverse of strategic narcissism. You say we need strategic empathy to understand what our adversaries' motivations and incentives are. And as I was reading that in the book, I was reminded of something that former ambassador Samantha Power said she was talking about the Obama administration's decision about whether to intervene in Syria or to what extent. And she said, you know, even our country leaders in Syria, our regional experts, people who spend their careers studying that country and that region, they didn't have a good sense of what was going on on the ground. You know, they didn't appreciate all the sectarian divisions and such. And so it made me wonder, how can we use strategic empathy? How does that work in a context where we lack good information? We certainly don't have perfect information. In some cases, we don't have decent information. So how does strategic empathy work in a complex theater like that? I mean, learn about it, right? Ask questions. Listen to, how about listening to some Syrians, you know, I mean, for something radical. I mean, instead of listening to, you know, the U.S. experts. I mean, I, I think if you look at the experience in Afghanistan, the same is true. I mean, I, I remember, you know, watching one of these 9-11 documentaries and hearing a U.S. senior military officer say, well, I just don't think we really understood the country. I wanted to say, what? I mean, it was your job. It was your job to understand, right? And, and so not that you're going to ever have perfect understanding. You have to be humble to learn. 99% of what you need to know about a particular conflict, you can learn just by asking people who live there right? And who are already cooperating with you. Now, of course, in these complex environments where parties and factions are, are vying for power, people will give you information, not just to inform you, but to influence you. And you got to know that, right? You got to know that. And then, of course, you want to consult real experts, right? So when our regiment, we're fighting in you know, the so-called Triangle of Death area south of uh, Baghdad, and the situation had deteriorated terribly in, in Nineveh province. And essentially, Al-Qaeda had you know, a suicide bomber and jihadist terrorist pipeline open through Syria. So our regiment got diverted up to the city, centered on the city of Talafur, but an area of 22,000 square kilometers, you know, with a vast desert area and the town of Sinjar, the Yazidi population who we saw horribly terrorized with the rise of ISIS in 2014. And when we got there, we had to ask a lot of questions, you know, to figure out what the dynamics were. But I also called my friend who was the, at the head of the history department at West Point. And I said, hey, do you know any experts in the tribal aspects of society in northern Iraq? And he said, well, how about Major Dan Bernard, who just had completed his Ph.D., in, in Middle Eastern history at the University of Chicago and had just joined the faculty at West Point. And I said, well, how soon can he get on a plane? And what he did before he got on the plane is he went to Columbia University's library and he got out the books that were written by British officers in the 1920s during the revolt against the British and photocopied some of the tribal maps and some of the explanations and sent those to me. Uh, you know, and this is in the middle of combat, right? I mean, I mean, this is how you learn. And, and so what that did is that grounding and him coming over, it helped us ask the right questions. This was strategic empathy at work. This is the term that I borrow from my friend Zachary Shore, who's a phenomenal historian, who's written some really great books on what we're talking about. General Master, you wrote in your book, and you just said right now that Afghanistan wasn't a 20-year war. It was a one-year war fought 20 times. 
given that the United States had been in Afghanistan for 15, 16, 17, then 20 years, should the US have just fought that one-year war a few more times? Or what should the United States have done in Afghanistan? Well, you know, it's part of the conventional wisdom these days is that we should have just left, right? We should have just taken what you might call the George Costanza approach to war and just leave on a high note, right, after the success in 2001. But, you know, I mean, what happens then? What would have happened is the Taliban would have regenerated like they did with the help of al-Qaeda, with the help of Pakistan's ISI. And then we would not have accomplished the objective of ensuring that Afghanistan could never again be used as a base for jihadist terrorists who were a threat to all humanity. No, I think I think we should, we should have sustained the effort, but we should have sustained the effort in a way that did not forfeit all the benefits of a long-term commitment by saying we're leaving immediately. Wasn't the reason for the one-year war 20 times U.S. public opinion, is it even possible for a democracy to construct a foreign policy that commits to conflicts for indefinite periods of time? I think absolutely yes, because I think the cause and effect relationship, Henry, maybe is the opposite. If you just look at the fact that based on public opinion polls, that the majority of Americans support getting out of Afghanistan, I think that should come as no surprise. After three American presidents in a row told them it wasn't worth it, and we ought to prioritize withdrawal over an outcome that's worthy of any risks or costs. And really, Afghanistan, the numbers you hear a lot of times is the part of the kind of stop pretending thing is, you know, a trillion dollars and so forth. But at the end of the war, toward the last few years of the war, we had very low numbers of troops. Every casualty is a tragedy, but we're taking very few casualties. The Afghans were bearing the brunt of the fight against these enemies of all humanity. And the financial level of commitment was sustainable in a multinational effort that we could have sustained much longer. And there are many examples of U.S. sustained military commitments, right? You could use the Western frontier, for example, you know, but you could also use many other examples like, how about the Sinai Peninsula since the 1970s, keeping peace there? How about Bosnia or Kosovo? How about South Korea, right? <laughs> which, you know, which looked pretty bleak in 1953 with a, a corrupt government, a country ravaged by decades of war and brutal occupation, an illiterate population, no natural resources, a hostile neighbor. Okay, hey, we're still there with almost 30,000 troops. How about the small level of effort, but a sustained level of effort in Colombia? to help the Colombian armed forces and Colombian institutions cope with the security problems there that are enduring, but would have been disastrous without U.S. assistance in, you know, beginning in the late 90s, early 2000s. So we've done it in the past. I think we could have done it. But, you know, I think what the American people deserve to know is, hey, first of all, what is at stake? Why is it worth it? And then second, what is a strategy that will deliver a worthy outcome at, at an acceptable cost and risk? And I don't think any president did that except, okay, except paradoxically maybe Donald Trump in August of 2017. And that's the process we ran, the process I described to you in terms of a framing effort and then teeing up options for the president. And I'm telling you, it was painful because the, our process was being impeded by all sorts of people who didn't want to give the president options. They just wanted him to get out of Afghanistan. These are the... I don't know whatever you call these people, the, the economic nationalists or the alt-right or neo-isolationists, but whatever that group of people are, they just wanted him to do what he said he was going to do in the campaign and end the endless war. 
But I saw it as my job as national security advisor to give the elected president options. And so we developed those options and we examined, as you alluded to, a really important aspect of what we have to do, Henry, is we looked at the long-term costs and consequences, the second and third order effects of each. And we went to Camp David to get away from all the distractions, you know, and and presented those three options to him. And the picture we painted for his preferred option, option A, the first one we briefed, was exactly what's going on in Afghanistan now. And once he looked at that, when he, when he stared over that precipice, he said, okay, we're, we're not going to do that. And he made a much different decision. He gave a speech in August 2017, which is worth going back to, because I think it was the only time that we have had a sustained, reasoned, and sustainable approach to the war in Afghanistan. Now, of course, sadly, it was abandoned by 2019 when Ambassador Zal Khalilzad was sent to Doha, Gutter to surrender to a terrorist organization. I mean, that's we ought to call it what it is. That's what happened in, in the February 2020 capitulation agreement with the Taliban. Henry, incidentally, is writing a book on economic nationalism, so he may incorporate your views. All right. I need to book. learn about who those guys were that were always coming after me. I don't know. You'll have to let me know, I Henry. might be able to shed some light, but, you know, these academic wheels move very slowly, General <laughs> McMaster. I'm not like your West Point guy who can jump on a plane with the answers. I'm going to take like a year or two to get this thing finished. I'm going to ask one more question before I hand it off to Josh, and I'm going to ask about, about China. So the withdrawal from Afghanistan Afghanistan is sometimes seen as part of a pivot to Asia and a move to contain China or confront China more aggressively. Recently, the Biden administration did a deal with the Australian government. I'm not an Australian, by the way. I'm a New Zealander. I'd just like to clarify that for the record. They did a deal with the Australian government to sell them nuclear submarines. Now, the French were infuriated by this because they already had a deal with the Australians to sell them submarines. Is this emblematic of a potential conflict in the future that the United States is going to and dangerous relations with its traditional North Atlantic European allies that they will not potentially come along in this pivot to Asia to confront China? You know, I, I don't think so. And, and I think the reason for that is Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. And I think what's becoming more and more clear is the choice that countries face, whether it's EU countries or Australia or heck, you know, Vietnam or Japan or Zimbabwe, for that matter, or Zambia, you know, is not a choice between Washington and Beijing. It's a choice between sovereignty and servitude. And if you look at the countries where China has the greatest influence, they are servile relationships. I mentioned Zimbabwe as an example. I think Cambodia is another example. Laos, I mean, it's just not a pretty picture. I mean, how about North Korea, right? I mean, so I think leadership in countries are coming to that recognition. None of these groups of like-minded nations should be thought of as exclusive, right? So the other format that has really risen in prominence based on the threat from the Chinese Communist Party and its policies is the quad format of the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. And that, again, that's not meant to be exclusive. What it does is it brings countries together who have different competitive advantages and different relationships with other countries. So it should be thought of as kind of a hub and spoke sort of arrangement where we can foster international cooperation with like-minded countries. For France, you know, France is our, is our oldest ally. It's our only ally with whom 
we have not gone to war with previously, or among our major allies, of course, never Australia, but of the, of the UK, which we have a special relationship. But, you know, we did have that misunderstanding in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, there was and, that. And the early yeah. 19th century. But, you know, I, I think that France should recognize, hey, you can't have it both ways either, right? If, if you're President Macron, you can't talk about strategic autonomy in a way that suggests moral equivalence between China and the United States, and then be surprised by a cooperative arrangement that excluded France. So, you know, I think there are other areas where our European allies have not taken actions that, that actually strengthen deterrence or prevent hostile states or, you know, or rival states from gaining coercive power over them. I think Germany's a great example with Nord Stream 2 as well. So, you know, I think we're going to have differences with our allies. We ought to be straight up with them about it, frank with them about it. But I think this is not going to have any kind of lasting impact on the U.S.-French relationship. General, I want to shift gears and ask you about some domestic affairs. I was reading the review of your book in the New York Times by David Sanger. He ends it by saying, you know, the biggest battleground is here at home. And then I read the Washington Post review by uh, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, who can, also... Can I say something about that? What do you think the Washington Post was thinking when they gave my book to a guy who I criticized in the book to review? I mean... That seems like an odd practice, but anyway, that's all right. <laughs> well, he ended his review similarly to Sanger and saying, maybe the most important battleground is here at home. So they both ended on the same note. I teach constitutional law. I'm thinking about American political institutions. And I, I wanted to ask you about the, the unitary executive theory. And this is something that law professors write a lot about. But the idea is that the president should have basically plenary authority to decide where we engage militarily. So I wanted to ask your opinions on whether what the parameters of presidential authority should be in this realm, and, and if Congress has a, a role to play in your mind. Absolutely, Congress has a role, right? The so president obviously has executive authority in the area of the use of force under Article Two, but of course Congress declares war. Congress also controls the means of war, right? The, the power of the purse associated with the sustaining of the military forces necessary to wage war, right? So, so Congress absolutely, if, if it has to say in anything, Shouldn't it have a say in matters of life and death? I think, heck yes. And why that's important is not only to maintain separation of powers, but it's also important to maintain what uh, Henry had brought up earlier, which is popular will, right? You need the people's representatives who are there to reflect the people's will to be involved in these decisions. And also congressional oversight can act as a corrective to unwise policies. I think one of the lessons of Vietnam is that Lyndon Johnson's fundamental dishonesty, and this is what I read about extensively in Dereliction of Duty, it was not only regrettable because he was circumventing the Constitution of the United States, but it also it did remove an important corrective to what was an, an unwise approach to Vietnam. So Congress definitely has to have a say. And what I hope is that the people's representatives demand better. I just had the opportunity to testify this week to the House Committee on Foreign Relations on Afghanistan with an eye toward you know, what lessons can we learn. I'm glad the committee's undertaking that work. And I think that all of us, all of citizens, I think, have to demand better. How much should the United States be investing in the military? How should it be traded off against other domestic priorities, addressing poverty, inequality, climate change? Is the U.S. spending enough on the military? Should they be spending more? If they're to spend more, where should the money come from? What's your view on that kind of fundamental issue? Of I don't think the United States is spending enough now. 
And the, and the reason is that we have a huge bow wave of deferred modernization based on reductions in defense spending as we were waging the wars in the Middle East and in Afghanistan. And that bow wave of modernization is particularly important because it's been in this period of time that the People's Liberation Army of China, the Russian military and others have invested in asymmetrical capabilities that limit the differential advantages we counted on for a long time. So, you know, long-range and hypersonic missiles, tiered and layered air defense, electronic warfare, counter-satellite capabilities. All, all of this takes away some of the capabilities that we had relied on for our differential advantages. Now, if you look at the trade-off between the defense budget, right, discretionary spending, and social spending, which is largely non-discretionary in the budget, the problem with the deficit and the growing debt is not the military budget, right? The, the problem is either the non-discretionary spending or the lack of revenue, right, to actually pay for it. You know, we're spending less than 4% of GDP on defense right now. During COVID, we sent checks to Americans equivalent of about 16% of our GDP, right? So, I mean, it, I think it's really important. The numbers look big, you know, when you say 100 billions of dollars on defense. But when you look at what is required to deter war, to prevent the worst from happening, or to respond to threats from abroad, I think we're underinvested. And also, I think we risk investing in some of the wrong capabilities. I think the path that we've been on for a long time of, of procuring fewer and fewer, more exquisite, more expensive systems has to change because these countermeasures can cause some of these systems to fail. And what you need is probably more systems <laughs> that degrade gracefully and cheaper systems rather than to fail catastrophically. I also want to ask for your thoughts on kind of size of government question and optimum use of resources. You talk in the book more than once about the importance of public-private partnerships, and that resonated with me because I'm someone who thinks that government should be spending more on research and development, and then that can spur innovation in the private sector. So you just spoke about how we need to spend more on the military. It sounds like you also think we need to spend more on these R&D efforts, and that's an important part of preparing us for these 21st century challenges. In the conclusion of Battlegrounds, I write about education being the most important thing that we can do to preserve our competitive advantages. I use the example of the uh, National Defense Act in, in 1958 that invested a, a tremendous amount in research after the Sputnik moment, right, after Russia got into space first. We haven't had like a real clear Sputnik moment, but I think there's a recognition now that, that we have lost some of our competitive advantages for a number of reasons. Underinvestment is one. Another is because we haven't done enough to defend against massive industrial espionage by the Chinese in particular, and especially cyber-enabled industrial espionage. And there are problems that we are facing today that can only be dealt with more investment. And of course, among those are health security. We've seen what our investments over the years delivered. I used to have a job that, in which I was responsible for designing the future army. We invested quite a bit in research and development on rapid vaccine prototyping and manufacturing at scale. Our goal was to be able to, upon detection of a virus, to have a prototype vaccine in 24 hours. That investment led to MNRA technologies and helped us begin to overcome this global pandemic. But you know, if you look at the interconnected problems that we have these days of climate change and the carbon emissions and so forth, energy security, health security, 
water security, food security, all of those problem sets are interconnected. And what I argue in the book is that we need a holistic approach to those problem sets, and we have to apply a whole range of technologies in combination to build a better future for generations to come. And we can do it. I, I just give a short survey in the final chapter of some of those technologies that are particularly promising. But with more investment, we can get there a lot faster. I'm encouraged to see a lot of legislation now. My research assistants and I have had a small role in, in fostering and working on uh, such as the Strategic Competition Act, for example, the Endless Frontier Act, a recognition as well that we had allowed supply chains globally to become too biased in favor of efficiency and not enough in favor of resilience, right? We saw that with PPE and pharmaceuticals and so forth during the pandemic, but also, you know, semiconductors, for example, we're seeing the slowing down of our economy as a result of, of supply constraints there. So the CHIPS Act in Congress is an investment. We do need to invest and, and use what I, what I would say economic statecraft, as well as investments in research and development to maintain our competitive advantages. It almost sounds like you agree with the economic nationalists on the economic policy, but they should leave the security policy to the experts. <laughs> well, I should leave the economic policy to the experts for sure. I mean, washed up generals shouldn't talk about economics. So I'll just stop. I'll just stop there. <laughs> I don't know. I was quite enjoying that. Well, should we come back to this topic of strategic narcissism? We have a few more questions on that. What are your thoughts on the role of public schools and universities in addressing strategic narcissism? Can public universities combat this sense of fatigue or this lack of public support for U.S. security policy if they do a better job of educating the public about national security issues, about international relations, about international history and these sorts of issues? Yes, absolutely. And I think in many ways, though, universities have been part of the problem. And, and I think one of the reasons is really this tendency to take a theoretical approach to understanding the world instead of a more historical approach, okay? Kind of hashtag predictable for a historian to say that, right? But then also, I know this is probably an inflammatory term, but I'm going to use it anyway. It, I think it is in many ways a curriculum of self-loathing that has come to, to dominate many of our humanities departments. And what many of our students learn is that all of the ills of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism, all of the ills of the world after 1945 were due to capitalist imperialism, right? And and what happens, I think, is because of this tendency to take kind of a Marxist view and, and, a, and a view that's biased in favor of impersonal forces, is that people lose their sense of agency. You know, they think, okay, well, if everything is just systemic fill in the blank, you know, what can we do about it? And then also it reduces our confidence. And when you look at the historical record of, of just say U.S. military involvement since the beginning of the 20th century, I think it's hard to argue that America hasn't on balance been a force for good, right? I mean, you know, helping to end World War One was, I think that was a positive sacrifice that America made. How about defeating Japanese imperialism, you know, or Nazi fascism? I put that in the plus column, right? How about the long effort in the Cold War to ensure that, you know, democracy could prevail, you know, over communist totalitarianism? How about a plus there? How about June 1950, when North Korea invades the South? Hey, just take a look at North of the 30th parallel, compare that to South of the 30th parallel, and maybe ask a couple South Koreans, was it worth it? You know, of course, we make unwise decisions. I wrote a book about Vietnam and the fundamental dishonesty as well that I think led to our strategic failure in Vietnam, set conditions for our strategic failure there. 
you also have to look at the our, our, our interventions in in the Balkans that really stopped genocidal campaigns and inter- interventions on the side of Muslims, right, to prevent genocide. I mean, I could go on about this, obviously, but I think in Afghanistan today, even though it is heartbreaking to see what's happening, you see what the United States was preventing from happening for two decades. So I think that the way that we teach history should not be certainly a rosy kind of overly optimistic view of America's role in the world. But hey, how about just giving some equal time you know, to some of these accomplishments that I think were in the interest of all humanity. And I think you, could, you can see the lack of confidence also in how we teach American history, right? I think if you look at at George Floyd's murder, the violent aftermath, how it exposed and pulled the curtain back on social and racial divisions in our country, you can't help but come to the conclusion that we are still dealing with the legacy of slavery. We absolutely are. But I think when we, when we try to understand our history, it is a manipulation of history to say that our republic was founded on principles that were meant to preserve slavery rather than principles that ultimately made the worst blight on our history untenable. I think we ought to teach our children that it was a triumph to emancipate four million of our fellow citizens in our most destructive war and then teach them the disappointments of the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, separate but equal. But then also, again, this issue of agency, we should teach the achievements of the civil rights movement and how that removed at least de jure, you know, inequality of opportunity and de jure segregation, but de facto inequality of opportunity and segregation, I mean, it's still a problem. Okay, so, hey, let's get to work on it. Maybe go back to the Federalist Papers and see the degree to which the founders we're concerned that our republic would require constant nurturing. Okay, so let's do some nurturing, you know. But I really think a lot of our curricula in the humanities is just is pessimistic and actually defeatist and really tells our young people that our country is the problem, right? When in fact, I think it's not only inaccurate, but I think it's dangerous to our psyche and it's dangerous to our ability to affect it, a reasonable approach to foreign policy as well. On this theme of civic education, I want to ask about your thoughts about the media and the media's role in portraying some of these global conflicts, educating Americans on what's really going on. I mean, we know Americans are not very well informed on other parts of the world, and I wonder if you could speak to the, the media's role in all this. Well, you know, I think it's it, this is a big part of the problem. I, I read about this in the new afterward for the paperback version. I read about the, some of the social divisions that we've seen this this year. Reemphasize, you know, ed- education, but the information environment is toxic, and our media is not playing as positive a role as they should to actually compensate for that toxicity. And I think a lot of this has to do with business models. I'm not an expert on this. I, I should l- learn more about this from colleagues here at ASU. But I I think that the business models do encourage cable news in particular to keep the loyalty of a certain audience based on partisanship. So, I mean, this is the lamentable situation that if you lean one way politically, you watch one cable news station. If you lean the other way, you watch one of two others. Americans aren't going to kind of any single source of of facts and and analysis that can serve us, that can make maybe common understanding as the basis for reasoned and civil discussions of the challenges that we're, that we're facing. And of course, that's magnified by the pseudo media that puts out all these, you know, crazy conspiracy theories, you know, from QAnon and, you know, Pizzagate or, you know, other crazy conspiracies on the left as well. 
the anti-vaccine disinformation, and then social media, which the avarice of these companies in pursuit of more and more advertising dollars, which they get from more and more clicks, and they get more and more clicks by showing users more and more extreme content. Okay, so you, you like this crazy conspiracy theory? Let me show you an even crazier one, you know? And so I, I really think that the information environment and the fourth estate is part of this are pulling us apart from each other, polarizing us even further, and then pitting communities against each other. I think of this as sort of centripetal forces that are spinning us apart from one another. And then those of us in the middle are just saying, okay, let's stop tearing our country apart. Let's come together you know, for meaningful, respectful discussions. You know, let's emphasize a little bit as we celebrate our diversity, but also let's celebrate our common identity as Americans, what we have in common, maybe even across humanity. In the places I've served abroad, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, I found that our common humanity transcended any of even the, the most stark, you know, cultural differences. I wanted to end on a personal question, General, if I could. You were in the military for over three decades. You've, been, you've had access to information that most Americans have not. You have a sense of the threats that most Americans do not. I, I wonder, as you transition back to civilian life, how do you compartmentalize that? How do you turn off that part of your brain and just go out and enjoy you know, an ice cream or something. I mean, <laughs> I, I really wonder about that because you're writing so passionately about these issues. How do you turn that off on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I probably never will be able to turn it off. <laughs> you know, The military, what's interesting about it, the military is a living historical institution. And a lot of what you do is you try to preserve the legacy of excellence that, that has been passed on to you from previous generations, build on it, right? And pass that on to the next generation. So I think at this stage, I tell you know, our students here at ASU or at Stanford, I say, okay, you know, all these problems I'm telling you about, you're going to be the ones who have to solve them, right? So I think, but our job is to try to, to set them up for success as best we can. And the kind of mission statement I made for myself, you know, predictable, I guess, for, you know, washed up general to make a mission statement for himself is to contribute to a deeper, more full understanding of the complex challenges and opportunities we face as a way to bring us together in our own country, but across the free world so we can work together effectively to build a better future. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Josh. Great to be with you guys.